This is the One Soldier Podcast, episode 21, with me, Russell Hillier. Alberta separatism, independence, Wexit, whatever you want to call it, Alberta's place in Confederation has never been lower, and its very membership in Canada has been called into question. Now, the issue of Alberta independence has existed for decades, it's been around a long time. But in a poll done last year, an unprecedented 30% of Alberta respondents indicated that they would vote for independence if a referendum was held. And interestingly enough, responses in Saskatchewan were almost identical. And if you think the map of Canada is so set in stone as to make this a preposterous proposition, well... Let me draw your attention to Nunavut in 1999, or Newfoundland in 1949. What will the map of Canada look like? How will it change in 10, 20, or 30 years from now? On today's show, I'm joined by Paul Hinman, former MLA, elected two times, and currently leader of the Wild Rose Independence Party. In this episode, me and Paul are going to talk about face masks, freedom, the fight against globalism, and Alberta independence. Paul Hinman joined me from his home in Alberta, and our conversation starts now. Paul, it looks like you haven't changed in like the last 10 years since I saw you last. I wish my body said that. My hair's getting thin, and my legs are getting weak, and my arms are getting weak. And it's... <laughs> No, no, you look like you're in a fighting form. Good to see you, man. And you. How is your dad doing with the fight out there? I don't follow him as often as I should, but <laughs> it, it's a lonely fight. It's a lonely fight for freedom. Uh, I, yep. I think that he, no, I, I shouldn't say. I think I know that he's the only elected politician out in Ontario who is, you know, trying to stem the tide of the the madness, like yep. with the lockdowns, the mask wearing, the the just the blatant abuse of freedom, personal freedoms out there. Oh, it's just, it's just. It's unbelievable to me, Russ, that, that we are, are are living through this. And what bothers me the most is just the the apathy of most of the people. Yeah, me too. It's scary. Like, you know, I'm a I'm a humanities teacher for junior high school, and so often uh, we learn about historical events, like how like about communism and dictatorial governments. And uh, the question I always try to get the class to answer is how does this happen? Like, how does a, a functional yeah. society go down that road? And of course, it's always been a theoretical question that there's no answer to, but I think I figured it out. It's, <laughs> it's fear, isn't it? Yeah, I was going to say, I don't, I don't know that it's a theoretical question. It's <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> well, well, even well, even before that, you can argue that we weren't there, but but you just know that these snitch lines, the you know, the police that that, that have this, this this compliance attitude, and rather than a peace officer, and then seeing that you know things are okay, and yeah, it, it's just totalitarianism at its finest. Well, it is, and it it's a definitely a slippery road. And and think about the propaganda that people have been exposed well, to for the past. Yep eight months it's it's non-stop i mean you can't turn on the radio uh you can't drive down the road you can't go to a park without either like hearing somebody on the radio or seeing a sign or a billboard reminding you that yep. there's this big problem and of course seeing people seeing everybody with masks on too it's it's a feedback loop like a self-fulfilling prophecy yep. that it is. a constant visual reminder that there's a problem and you should be scared 
Yep. So uh, true. And the, and the sad thing is, though, is that those of us who aren't afraid and, and feel safe, um, the other ones feel like, like well, my, my son, he, he was actually called, the, you know, you're a murderer because he wasn't wearing a mask. Yeah. And, and like, are you kidding me? Yeah. You want to kill grandma if you don't wear a mask or if you don't buy into yeah. the nonsense. Yep. And it's interesting, too, because at, at the beginning, like everybody, I remember back in the summer, I was in Calgary, you know, you'd go to the grocery store and maybe one out of 10 people would have a mask on. Yeah. And as soon as I, I went on vacation, came back about a month later and the rules had changed, the mask mandates had come in. And then all of a sudden it's like 95% of people wearing a mask. And yeah. so at, and at the time, it, you know, you'd go out and you'd see all these people wearing masks and, and you know that they were doing it because the law told them to. But, but now, because it's so ingrained and entrenched and it's been around for a while, now you, you don't know if people are doing it because, because it's the law or because they agree with it. And so that affects how you approach people as well. Well, it's that false sense of security. And it's kind of interesting because they say that with seatbelts, that, that people are now actually driving crazier because they have this false sense of security that seatbelts make you safer. And they do, but now they're not practicing good safety and the same with these masks. I, I mean, I am just amazed at how many people think that that mask is what's going to prevent this virus from spreading or from them getting it. And, and that if I'm not wearing one, then that means I am probably the, the problem yeah, and the, be the spreader and, and the, the super spreader and arrest this person, get them out of here. Yeah. Well, do you think it's people have actually bought into it or is it just people are, wearing it because they think that the other person has bought into it. I, I, I would, you know, and this is pure speculation, but just because of the difference on the way people are responding now, I would say that they, that the majority of people have bought into it, that this mask is their protection and, and going to save our healthcare system from being overwhelmed and long run. And again, they, they, to me, people don't think long term, it's about today or two weeks or four weeks. That's why we have these so-called, you know, um, short-term reset or what, what do they call them? The circuit uh, breaker. Circuit breakers. Thank you. I forgot yeah. about the circuit breakers and it is shocking, <laughs> but, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they're, they're just, they're, they're like you say, they're being conditioned into it two weeks at a time, four weeks at a time and not realizing where, where we've got to, and the fact that, okay, what if a real pandemic, what if this does mutate to something that is actually deadly and, and 20 or 30% of the people are going to die because of mutated ones. And the fact that we've, we've spent billions of dollars, I don't know, 25 plus billion provincially, 350 billion federally, our healthcare system has always been, um, what would I say, overtaxed, overrun. Yes. And we spent nothing to, to to, to build it up and, and to get some some uh, resilience in it. We're, we're so fragile in it that they want to shut down our society, not realize if we shut down society, we'll have no money. And when we have no money, we're going to resort back to a third world country and not be able to have the healthcare system that we have. But yet it's all about saving it today. And who could possibly look down the road and, and foresee that or to think that a real pandemic could come and we don't need a more robust um, plan. Well, that, that's true. I mean, if you look at the, the math of, of what's been spent, we've, we've spent more in, you know, equivalent dollars than we did in World War II. So we've taken on more, like a World War II level of debt. And w what do we have to show for it? 
like at least in Nothing. World War II, we got rid of an evil empire. Yeah, no, what, what we have is a bunch of, of, of people that are paranoid of the future and afraid to participate rather than they came back as freedom fighters and a spirit that we're going to dig in and work. You know, we, we have nothing, but they built our country for us when they came back. And now we're all hiding behind a desk and think that somebody's supposed to pay us to hide there in safety, not having any understanding of where that money may come from or that we may lose our country and become a have-not uh, country and no longer part of the G7, but they all say, oh, but everybody else is like this, so yeah. we're, we're still part of the G7. Everybody, Everybody's jumped off the cliff, so yeah, it's man. Okay. Well, but you're right, though. I mean, the healthcare system, my wife is a nurse, so like I, I hear okay. this all the time, that the healthcare system is always at capacity. Like there's, there's only like this much room for like leeway, it's all yeah. it's always run at the max. And so if, if any little thing comes along, it can well, get just, just just look historically if we go back this year, because it's interesting. I've never heard of any red alerts for ambulances this year. Um, but yet, if you go back historically, I, I talked to one uh, EMR guy the other day and he, he says there's been many times where he spent his entire shift. Waiting in the hallway for the hospital to take their patient. And he says once, maybe twice, he actually finished his shift in that hallway, came back 12 hours later and had to resume with that patient still sitting in the hallway. And we have paramedics. I mean, it, it, it's a crazy system. I know. I know. I can't, I can't help but wonder. And I'm sure you've felt the same way that if we had devoted like a mere fraction of the cost that we've put into fighting this pandemic, if we had put a fraction of that into healthcare and into long-term care homes, yep. we, we, we would be way better Ahead. Oh, yeah. Just think if we spent $2 billion on long-term healthcare beds and $2 billion on another hospital, uh, $4 billion, and then all oh, the operating costs and everything else, that, that's fine. It's insignificant to the $25 billion it that, is. That, that we've spent for, for nothing. It's, it's like putting, I don't know, it's like uh, putting blood into a bleeding person and say, we can't suture them up, but we'll keep them alive and just keep adding the blood there. And Yeah, like we, we have not kept our powder dry for when when we really oh. might need it. Like, like you said, oh, we're, 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 we're weaker. We're, we've, we're, we're in a, a predicament now of if something happens, like I say, if this virus mutates, I mean, what, what do we do now? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Or, or if some, if it, like, if a brand oh. new virus comes yeah. along, I mean, yes. uh, it, it's kind of scary to think about like the, the draconian measures that we've resorted to with, with this virus, which, you know, it, I, I, I'm sorry to say this, but it has a 99 point whatever percent survival rate. If, if something much more serious came along, think about what the response of society would be to that. I mean, judging yeah. by what we've done with this. We, we, we do not have a society that could cope with a real pandemic and people dying. Like no. they, people would just be freaking out and our healthcare system would completely melt down. They, they don't even comprehend, in my opinion, and, and no, like we, we've got uh, grandchildren and whatnot that, that are nurses and no disrespect to them, but they, they need to go back and watch some of those movies, wartime movies where, where wounded soldiers are being just pulled in and cots and lined up. And when there's a pandemic, you just do the best you can do in it. You don't say, oh, we're full. You have to die out on the streets or, oh, this way. No, you do flood the rooms and, and you yeah. bring in cots. You do what you have to in a pandemic, but you can't. 
you, you can't build a hospital to say that, well, we, we need to have enough room for, you know, well, if 25% of people are going to get sick, we, we need 20, we need 1 million bed spaces and, and, and spend our money there. I mean, it, it's just one of those, those really tough predicaments where, and again, I think that uh, Lieutenant Colonel David Redman, you know, you, you have a pandemic plan. Like why, why don't we have four field hospitals that are $1.5 million a piece um, in storage to be utilized in a pandemic and had them set up and even had our own nurses going and working there rather than shutting down a whole hospital. Like, like yeah. those are yeah. things that, 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 that true pandemic planners plan for and you get up and you implement when this hits. So Paul, what would a independent Alberta response be to this? Because for those listeners who maybe are not from Alberta, and don't know, you are the leader of the Wild Rose Independence Party. In fact, I think that you're the only politician in Alberta to be elected two times with two different parties in two different ridings. So I think you're going to make it a third time as well. But what, what would an independent Alberta do differently? Well, first and foremost, we would absolutely recognize with a constitution, the supremacy of God and the rule of law. And that constitution would actually protect the individual's life, their freedom, their property, and their pursuit of happiness. And, and to me, a, a prosperous and free and safe society is only that way if you have a constitution that protects the individual. This idea that this is for the good of society is never good for society. And you talk about the humanities and you go back and teach that, it's always, well, we just need to scourge this group or that group that's bad, or this is the problem. If we get rid of them, if we eliminate them, if we jail them. And, and this idea that, that when you ever hear is that this individual or this group needs to be supposedly, I'll, I'll use the word sacrifice for the benefit of, benefit of society, it, it isn't any good. So you protect the individual. We, I guess because of the pandemic, let, let's switch and talk about healthcare because what we would do is we go back and revert. Central government doesn't work. Doesn't matter whether it's centralized business, centralized healthcare, centralized government, big government a long ways from the people is always a problem, creates all kinds of inefficiencies. There's no entrepreneurialism. There's no trying of something new. Everything has to get okayed by the big boy and he thinks everything's perfect or the big person at the top. Top. And so we, we would actually take the healthcare and we go back to regional healthcare. Uh, we would eliminate the global funding and we'd actually start to pay for services provided. So when somebody came into a hospital, they'd say, wow, this is a client we want. Right now they see someone that up, shows up at the hospital as an expense. We've already got our money. If we got to look after this person, it costs us more. Um, we would change, for example, e even the emergency room that when you come through that door, there'd be an immediate greeter there that would ask your name, your healthcare number and what your problem is and give you a number so that you could sit down and not have to queue up like, like a bunch of soldiers wait, wait, waiting to be enlisted and sent off somewhere. Uh, there's just so many things that, that if, you, if you back up and, and focus on, on service and, and protecting the people. And, and again, the, the last thing that we would ever do is, is start to decide what is critical or essential services versus not. And you let the, the it, you know, in a free market and in free people, you let the people exercise the risk that they're willing to take. And if 
I, myself or my wife or someone else still wants to go to the gym and exercise, why on earth would the government shut that down and tell those business people that you can't do that or a restaurant? Um, you, you just can't, in, can't override or eliminate the individual's freedoms. And by allowing that to float freely. And again, the other thing I guess most important that a wild rose government would do is we'd actually be looking at the science. I don't know how much you're following COVID, but you look around the world, you know, there's a, a place in Mexico, Chiapas, that, that started putting out ivermectin. Uh, you go down to Peru, they, they were early in July, they started giving out ivermectin. You go to India and you see these countries where they immediately recognize the benefit of ivermectin because people were taking that because of the parasites and the problems they have in those tropical countries. And, and yet we still here are being told by Alberta Health Services that, oh, ivermectin uh, shouldn't be prescribed. We, we would actually look out around the world. We'd start a task force. I don't know if you've seen uh, Dr. Corey presenting to the Senate a couple of weeks ago, very passionately showing them all the information on the repurposed drugs and, and to use them for treatment versus they're, they're already, you know, determined safe with the FDA, like hydrochloroquine, um, yeah. zinc, vitamin D, any of this, what you call the simple solutions aren't there. And big pharma is saying that, oh, well, we'll come up with this, this new, you know, vaccine that we've never been able to come up with a vaccine for coronavirus in the past that has been safe and had efficacy, but, but we'll do it this time if you throw enough money at us. And it, everything's gone sideways, Russ. It's just unbelievable. Whereas you just need to focus, what's the purpose of government? And so to finish off my long rant, we would actually be looking for all of the information throughout the world and providing that for the people so that informed people can govern themselves and make their own decisions on where they feel safe and what they should do and not compelling people saying you have to do this or you can't do that. But It's a good point though that the, the science and the data has been replaced with propaganda. Because if you look, if you look at the numbers, yeah, it, it's just people don't want to look at the real numbers because it, it goes against the official narrative. Well, just, of, just the fact that every day all we hear about is cases. It's yeah. not how many are sick. It's not, you know, it, it, it has nothing to do with the actual situation. It doesn't talk about the actual number of beds that are available that, that are here. It doesn't talk about the number. I, I guess probably the most frustrating thing to me is every day we hear about the number of COVID deaths, but what about the other 160 people who died that day? Are they not relevant? And what are they dying from? Yeah. Because we're, we're only getting a small percentage. You know, I don't know, in, in Alberta, we average 2000 deaths a month historically. And so that, that's 60, 60 deaths, you know, a, a day. It's all about the propaganda to create the fear, to create the compliance, to be able to create the, this really is about the great reset and wanting to destroy the, the Western free market and civilization as we know it. This is a one world government and, and boy, are they ever taking advantage of this virus to try and implement it. Well, and, and I think if you have an understanding of history and, and even how politics work, which you do because you've been in this game for a long time, uh, you can sort of see where these roads lead to and it's, it's not a pretty place. Nope. But, and, and so th thanks for being that one guy to, uh, to stand up. Well, I mean, thanks, I, I wish. Thanks to your dad too. <laughs> I mean, like the, the, there's always those lone wolves that are fighting for freedom, I guess, but, but we're, I don't know how, how your dad's doing out in Ontario, but we, we have a lot of people that are gathering. And again, this, this will actually push people off of their couches and out of their comfort zone to say, you know what, we, we've got to stand up for ourselves and for our future and for our children and grandchildren.
Yeah. And yeah. And, and I know, I know people, many friends who've gone to those, uh, those like protests and gatherings. Yeah. So it is definitely a needed thing. Paul, what the, the idea of Alberta independence has sort of been around for a really long time. And I mean, you can, you can think back to the genesis of the reform party, the Canadian Alliance, uh, probably even before then too, with the national energy program, courtesy of Trudeau senior, but Alberta independence definitely feels different this time. Uh, it feels a lot more, uh, I guess you could say broad based and, and I'll give you a good example. So I, like I coach my kids hockey team and I, I will, I will what, hear what age group. I, they're so a couple different ages. So under 11 and Timbits hockey. So like novice Timbits, yeah. but you'll hear people in the change rooms, like grandpas changing skates or dads, and they'll, they'll be like, they'll talk about Albert independence, like very openly. And sometimes they're joking around or sometimes it's an off the cuff remark, but, but it's out there. And further to that, you know, being a teacher, I'm not exactly in the most conservative environment, but, <laughs> but, but still, and, and I don't want to overblow things and, and, and make it seem like there's a majority of teachers who think this way, but I've got a number of colleagues who, if you ask them, they would say, Oh yeah, I would vote Wexit tomorrow or I would vote in Alberta independence. Yeah. So, so it, it's out there and uh, definitely more broad based than it was before. What, what do you think is the reason behind that? We're, we're, we are hurting more than we've ever hurt since the dirty thirties. And in the dirty 30s, you know, the Eastern elites pulled out. They pulled the banks away. They said, oh, there's, there's nothing out there worth saving. We're not going to worry about them. But now I want to say the two biggest things that are propelling this is one is the economy. But, but two it is the, the political policies that are focused at, at shutting down and hurting Alberta. And, and whether you want to even take such a far off look at employment insurance and realizing that Albertans are, are subsidizing every other province's employment insurance up until recently. Um, and, and you just case after case, you know, the pension plan, Alberta subsidizes all the other Canadians on that. And, and we're hurting and we're giving the bully our lunch money, hoping that he's going to give us some lunch back and he just laughs and, and walks away and says, ah, you're on your own. You don't deserve to, to eat. And that's the, the, the way many Albertans are looking. They're, they're realizing now the resentment that, that Ottawa and Trudeau and others have to us and our industry. Because a lot of people think it's just the industry, but it isn't. Even if, if they were to shut down the oil and gas and we rebounded and, I don't know, or innovative in agriculture and technology and stuff, they, they would still focus policies at, at extracting the maximum out of us that they could and, and keep us beholden to them. Yeah. And, and just some of those numbers that you're talking about, I, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's on average $20 billion a year in that Alberta. Yeah, that's called a membership fee. The membership fee of Confederation. Yes. <laughs> well, it's really, a, yeah, think about what we could do with $20 billion of our own money that we could keep each year. But not only that, I would argue the other 20 billion and there's a total of 50 billion and they figure that we get 10 billion back kind of for healthcare and that's our own mess and not doing well. But the other 20 billion of services, 
I think that we could probably do it at half of that, at 10 or 15 billion, and provide much better services for Alberta than what the federal government does in, in their so-called, I, I, you know, what, what services are they giving us for the other $20 billion? Uh, I don't know, bilingualism? <laughs> <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> it's, it's really, a, it's almost like a colonial attitude. It is, it absolutely yeah. is. And, and it's been going on for a long time, hasn't it? I mean, what, one yeah. of the, once I started looking into the history of, of a, a Western separatism and, and whatnot, it, well, first of all, you come across that old, uh, you've probably seen this, that old cartoon. <laughs> With the cow? cow? Yeah, and so that's just as relevant as it is today. I, our, our museum, oh, when was that? 2015, 16, our local museum here at the Galt Museum, had, had a, they, they put up a, a great display of the Dirty 30s. And yeah, they, they had the people there um, milking the, the cow and getting dumped on in the East. But I, I was shocked at how relevant it was a few years yeah. ago. And, and now it's full circle. It, it totally is. And, and I think there's, uh, you know, as someone who I sort of like have two perspectives on this, because, of course, I've, I've lived in Alberta for, I think, about 15 years now. And my, my four kids have been born here. But being from Ontario, uh, and I still go back there from time to time, but I sort of see both, both sides of the mindset. Yeah. And what, I don't know if Albertans realize this, but the, the Eastern mindset or, or attitude towards Alberta is not a good one. Uh, it, it's very, you know, if you say Alberta is in, in the East, it's almost like a pejorative term. Yeah. And a, a lot of it is based on like stereotypes that aren't really relevant anymore, but uh, I think there's this belief in Ontario and in Quebec that, oh, Alberta's rich. And so it's their, it's their privilege to, to, like you said, pay the membership fee of Confederation. Don't most of them deny that we're even contributing to anything extra? Like, like, I don't know, like when you listen to the premiers from Quebec and Ontario and stuff, they, they act like, and, and again, Ontario has contributed in the past, not always a have not province, but, but they, they just totally deny that they're being subsidized. Yeah, well, it's it, and I think Quebec especially. Uh, oh, yeah, Quebec, that. yeah, they're, they're they're the elephant in the room. Come on, but but you and but you won't hear it though in Ontario. For instance, if you're in Calgary and you turn on the radio, you're going to hear about Western alienation, independence. Uh, you're going to hear about the equalization imbalance in Ontario. You'll never hear anything about that on the news. Uh, and I think actually it would be a huge surprise to most people. In the East, if I can call it that, that <laughs> up to 30% of Albertans uh, would vote for a separatism. And that's, those are numbers from polls that were done a while ago. Yeah. But that would be shocking to most people in Ontario because they'd be like, what? There's, there's people talking about separatism in Alberta? What, what's going on here? Because they don't know. They're not being yeah. told the truth. No, it's just, it's, it's just interesting how you know, the, the, the role that the media plays in, in covering stories and, and pushing a narrative because... It would be it would be surprising to most people across the country, and and if you're listening to this program in Ontario or Quebec, uh, this isn't to to bash anybody, but just no, it, the the idea in Alberta is that well, economically, it would make a lot of sense to go at our own go at our own way because and, and, and it's not even economically it, it's we 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 have a different. Uh, entrepreneurial spirit out here where where you you get out and you perform and merit counts where i i'm sorry that i i can't say you know i've done anything besides visit out east but they have a very um socialist mindset with this idea of the good for society um do these things for the group and they've 
whether you want to say been raised, been educated, the propaganda, they, they think that, that socialism is fine or that majority should rule. And that's something else I should say, you know, that, that majority rule um, is, is no different than tyranny by the majority is no different than tyranny of the one. And, and that's one of our problems with the Canadian constitution. It very much allows for that, for the seven wolves to vote and say, well, we're going to take the lambs from the five sheep and, and that's perfectly legal and, and legitimate. And they say, well, we need them for our kids. And they don't think anything of where they're taking it from them or why they're taking it. Just they're the majority. So they can. And yeah. I also yeah. use the analogy quite often that, you know, Wherever you live, you kind of think you're the center of the universe. And so if you live in Toronto, you, you kind of think that that is Canada. You, you don't even think of Ontario, rural Ontario. Um, you, you're, you're there looking and you're the focus. And then if you get to rural Ontario, you see Toronto is the center of the universe, but you forget about what's behind you. And each time you go further out, and when you're out at Pluto, you see all the planets between here and there, and you recognize them. But, but when you're that, that planet closest to the sun or the center of government, you forget anything that's behind you. And I used to, when I was in the legislature and I had to sit uh, beside uh, Rachel Notley and um, Brian Mason, that they were always talking about these people with so much money and that it, it should be taken away and redistributed. And I, I used to always say, well, what you don't fail, what you fail to realize is that if you're on the economic ladder of the world, um, you're part of that 97% and, and you should look behind. And if you think that it should be redistributed, well, then you should start sending your money and you should start going to India or Africa or, or these you know, South American countries. And, and, and that's where I say that people don't realize who are behind them. They only see who's in front of them and they're jealous and think that they should get it only to turn around and look down and realize that, wow, 90% um, of the people are still behind me and their majority vote uh, could take everything that I have. But anyways, it, it's just interesting how people and the Easterners, their perspective is very different than someone who's on the outside. Yeah, well, and, and that that is just a, I think what you're talking about, there is a complete lack of perspective. Oh. There, there's a lot of people in Alberta who I, I think when they think about Alberta's interests and, you know, the idea of separation, they, they sort of, historically anyways they've looked to jason kenny as being like the great defender of alberta and the man who's going to put trudeau in his place and and stand up for our interests but we haven't really seen that happen have we like we've seen a lot of angry rhetoric from from the uh from the jason kenny government but what, what's your take on that like is, is well, he the guy who's able to to stand up but there isn't the person that i was more excited to support and get in there and thought wow we've, we've got us a, a real uh, general here who's going to look after Alberta and, and with your greatest expectations and hopes come your greatest disappointments and, and I have to say it's been the biggest disappointment and I, I love to go back to the scenario of um, TC Energy's Nova Gas Transmission Limited expansion line here in Alberta that they spent two years um, meeting all the rules and regulations of the old National Energy Board updated to meet Trudeau's new uh, Canadian energy regulator, which had a lot more, um, uh, what would I say, conditions in order to get a pipeline built inside Alberta. But the Canadian energy regulator actually gave the okay for that on the 19th of February, 2020. 
a time when we desperately needed jobs. And Kenny promised three big things for me is he, he promised jobs, pipelines, and to fight Ottawa. And here is a pipeline inside our provincial boundaries being regulated by Ottawa. And instead of, of being able to, to go ahead on the 20th of February this spring, when we desperately needed the, the $1.4 billion invested, we needed the 5,500 jobs, it got hijacked with the new bill. And I can't remember the name of the bill. Was it Bill 61 or whatever? But anyways, where, where is it? But anyways, bottom line is, is that after it's gone through the regulator, it has to go through a political um, 90 days of cabinet to see, is there anything that we should be adding to this from the political side? Bad enough to have to go through the regulations, but now you, you got Trudeau and his cabinet looking at it. And after the 90 days, so on the 19th of May, they should have had to rule and say, yeah, you can go ahead or here's the conditions. They hijacked it for another 150. And so like 240 days later on the 19th of October, 2020, Trudeau comes out, here's the new um, conditions, and they put five more conditions, which the Canadian Energy Regulator soundly refuted and says, no, those aren't the good conditions. Well, the politicians in cabinet put them in there. Two of them are open-ended, where you don't even know what the costs are going to be. And what did Jason Kenney and Sonia Savage do? Oh, we're so excited that we've got the approval. We'll help TC Energy meet all these new rules and regulations. And we're just so glad that this came through. When, when back on the 20th of February, he should have said, you know what, Ottawa, this is none of your business. We're going ahead with this. But TC Energy, being a Canadian company, is very cognizant that, well, we, we can't upset Ottawa because we need other areas outside of Alberta. So I understand their point, but our premier should have been standing up and saying, no, you, you back off. We're building this expansion line. It's not a new pipeline. It's an expansion line like Trans Mountain. And we're going through all of this hassle. But anyways, I, I just fear... You know, there was, they figured there's another $2 billion that was probably going to be spent because this pipeline was going to open up and, and have expansion room. And that all got thwarted for this winter's work. And it's been a repercussion. But no, Jason, Jason hasn't done anything to protect us. He hasn't uh, done anything for jobs. And he's done very little for pipelines and has been to our detriment. And, we, and to make matters worse, he sat on the stage with his good buddy Aaron O'Toole and says, oh, we're just not making the progress in the uh, environment that we need to make. We just got to chew our gum better as we're walking and we'll get there. Well, I'm sorry, but even with Rachel Notley and her so-called social license and the carbon tax and everything else. It's not about social license. This is about animosity, jealous and anger. And these people would, would cut the hand that feeds them just out of spite and, and ignorance because they don't understand that this is some of the best oil in the world. We have the best environmental laws, the best labor laws, the best human rights legislation. And yet they want to get their oil from conflict regions and, and tear tyrannical governments and, and, and send our money there. It's just unbelievable rust to me. And that's why Albertans are finally realizing that these people in Ottawa are not our friends and they want to hurt us and they want us to be a have not province. Yeah. And, and of course, when you're a have not province, then you're, you're very easily controlled that way. And, and that sort of, yeah. And, and that gets back to what you were talking about with like the Alberta spirit has always been one of entrepreneurialism independence. And if, yeah. If you if you can get a province addicted to to handouts, then then you lose that spirit. 
And, and hasn't but, Jason already shown that that's his spirit? He's he's begging for handouts and please send us more. And then he's stomping his feet and pounding his hands that we're not getting the $6 billion that we need. Instead, $237 million or some measly amount. Yeah. And I, I think you have to, you got it when you're thinking about this, like you got to consider that, you know, he, he's a man that has federal ambitions. And so if he's going to lead the, the federal conservative party, I mean, that I think that's where he wants to be eventually. Uh, he can't alienate the rest of the the provinces. And so there's this like, where, where, where does the loyalty lay? Like, is it to your province or is it to the rest of the country that you'll need to, to potentially get to the top dog position? And- and, and again, what most people don't realize, and they should, because we've contributed over $600 billion um, in the last few years into Confederation, that a healthy Alberta makes for a healthy Canada. But no, that's not it. They, they want their star player on their team to, to be limited on the time on the field. They want them to have, a, if I use a hockey analogy, they want us to go out and play with a four-inch hockey stick and compete in the world when the rest get a full... Um, full stick and they get to sharpen their skates and we're not allowed to. Yeah. It's, it's definitely like a, an unfair advantage. There there's, there was also like, I remember before this pandemic started there, there was uh independence rallies being held with like, you know, 500 people packing arenas. Uh, it, th- these were like crowds that were very, very large and significant. There was also this, uh, there was the Maverick party that, well, it was, sorry, it was Wexit. And yeah. then uh, it morphed into this thing called the Maverick party, which always to me seemed like a really, uh, I don't know, seemed like a dumb name for, for a party, <laughs> but where, where have they been? Because they have been missing in action for six months, if not longer. They're supposed to be cool. Alberta's representative, uh, sort of like the Bloc Quebecois. Yeah. Yeah. When you, when you look at what, what they put out, They've said these are MPs that are going to go out to Ottawa purely in Alberta's interest or Western Canada's interest because they are a Wexit group, meaning Manitoba West. But I don't know how many. I mean, the lion shares they're going to get elected will probably be from Alberta, then Saskatchewan, and maybe some of northern BC. But they're going out there purely to represent the interests of the West. But but realizing this flawed majority rule system, you, you can go out there and squawk all you want. Uh, you might be able to slow some things down, but you can't stop or turn anything around. And that's why you need a provincial party that's actually about protecting Alberta, standing up, putting our house in order. And again, when you said, what would a, a Wild Rose government do? You asked about the pandemic, but but there's six things that we really need to do in my mind in order to um, reestablish ourselves as a, as a strong and free society. But number one is that we need to create the Alberta Revenue Agency and we need to collect all of the taxes here in Alberta by Albertans and then we will scrutinize the federal programs and, and what needs to be funded and what isn't. And yes, that'll be a legal battle. I get all of that. And we could play nice in the sandbox for a year or whatever, just so we get everything set up and functioning right. Number two, though, we need our own police force. Last thing we need is for Trudeau. And again, we have enough trouble with our own police force, especially yeah. with the COVID stuff. And you look at that. Um, but you need your own police force and not uh, Ottawa saying, Hey, I want this gun grab. It hasn't even passed through legislation, but, but he could send out the RCMP tomorrow to go collect what is now prohibited weapons, according to Justin Trudeau. So, and and again, that, that they, they have no regard for rural Alberta. Um, They don't uh, police it properly. And again, what, what we have here, and it's quite evident, especially after this COVID things, 
that they're they're more worried about compliance and and the people respecting them and and protecting I want to call the perpetrator and and the victim is is just almost um, ignored in our current system so with the police we need to upgrade our justice system to where we're actually protecting the individual and the victim and and we're putting these perpetrators away into reform camps or whatever and not allowing them to run freely but Canada pension uh, we need an Alberta pension plan. It should be like Quebec and those other ones. We, we should have billions of dollars in an Alberta pension plan, and we don't. We send out an extra you know, $2.7, $2.9 billion of the Canada pension plan that could actually be building a, a, a fund that, that's fully funded instead of um, all of this unfunded liabilities that we have. Employment insurance, another area where, again, it's ridiculous that Alberta workers are subsidizing all the other workers on their insurance. Um, we, we need to, in 1930, we became what I call a third-class citizen um, to a second-class citizen because they, they passed the Resource Transfer Act, and Alberta then became owners of the resources and the land. Um, we need an environmental act now because no pun intended, but the environmental act has trumped the resource act and we don't have control of our resources now. And we need to just tell Ottawa, look, you, you can impose whatever restrictions you want on your economy and your people. But here in Alberta, we, we know how to keep our land and our water and our air clean and pure. We'll have our own environmental act. And then the other one, though, is, is immigration policy, that we just need to get a handle on that and go back to what it used to be, where you had family and business sponsorship of people. And probably most important, though, when we've had a foreign worker here for two years, they've been working, they have a job, they haven't got in trouble. Why are we sending them out of our country? Those are the people that should be first on our list to be able to claim residence and, and to become an Alberta citizen. So, Paul, what you're saying is... Uh... In Alberta, an independent Alberta is not going to be having police tasering, kids playing hockey, and we get to keep more of our money. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. <laughs> one, one of our new, what, my, my goal with a new constitution, there's two things that I see that causes, you know, old, I, I love Churchill's old saying, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. But, but let's look at democracy and, and what are the, the problems that causes it to fall apart? Um, number one is usually fiscal, fiscal irresponsibility of big government and they start running big debts and, and get into financial trouble. But the worst of it is, is that by not having to balance your books every year, you can buy votes with our children and grandchildren's money. And so a constitution needs to say outside of, of, of true emergencies and whether that's a fire, earthquake or whatever it might be, uh, certainly not a little virus that, that kills uh, 800 people um, in a year's time, but you have to balance your books. And if in fact you spent $10 billion more like Trudeau did his first year, it actually turned out I think to 20 or 30 billion, well taxes all go up the next year, just like municipal government. And, and we need to be able to balance that. And then, then government can't buy votes from other people because they, they're, they're expecting them to pay next year. And the other problem that we have is accountability. And you know how passionate I am about recall. Um, you, you just absolutely have to be able to fire your elected people. It's very simple to me, 50% plus one of the total number of people who vote in the last election. If they sign a petition, you're out of there. And the last one that goes along with recall and accountability is citizens initiative referendums that are binding and people can bring them forward and do that. But no, a, 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 an Alberta that puts its house in order and then lets the people in a referendum decide whether they want to stay or go um, it's the only hope, in my opinion, for our children and grandchildren. 
Well, I think that's like a lot of just common sense uh, policy that you're talking about. And I think that a lot of Albertans will be uh, really amenable to to that message. Hey, Paul, do you think that uh, think that Ottawa would and the Laurentian elite, do you think that they would just let the goose that lays the golden egg walk away? You know, the real question is, is can they stop us from walking away? And, you know, well, it's an interesting point. We're spending an extra $20 billion a year for our membership fee. Do you know how much it costs to operate the Canadian military? It should be a lot more than what they're spending, but I, I take your well, point. It's, it's, it's actually depending on how you calculate it, but anywhere from $15 billion to $21 billion. We, we could actually, with all of the money we have, hire the Canadian military and say, hey, we're going to fund you. I mean, we got two of the biggest bases um, we, we've got a lot of military here. And so, I, I mean, the, the question is, is where would the loyalty lie? What can you do? But I, I just, first of all, when you have a prime minister that thinks that budgets just balance themselves and he spends like a drunken sailor or worse, a Saudi prince who, who just has money that he wants to throw around the world and be lavish and, hey, look at me, aren't I wonderful? What, they don't even know where the money's coming from. They're in denial of it. So I don't know that they realize how much is coming from us. And it's even like our own freedoms with this COVID. You don't realize what you have until you lose it. And so I don't think they're smart enough to realize they're gonna lose anything if we were to leave and, and we'll be all set up and running well before they, they kind of wake up to realize that, oh, who's gonna put the fuel in my car? Um, where's the fuel in my car gonna come from? Um, so, right. I don't see I don't see a problem from them. They're so arrogant and full of themselves. Uh, I, I just don't see it. But but we'll be we'll cover ourselves just to make sure. Yeah, and I mean yeah. also uh, just from a, a geopolitical sense, we've got America next door who are, aren't going to let. Uh, chances are they're not going to let any funny business uh, happen on their borders. So that that well, the, would definitely the scary thing. The scary thing on that though, Russ, right now is 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 whether Biden becomes a part of this new new America. Because if Biden's in there, to me, he, he's uh, maybe even further down the road than Trudeau on world globalism. And you look at his connections with China, you look at the Chinese troops that are here um, and Biden's connection with China, I, I'd be very fearful if, if Biden's in there and Trudeau together, uh, I think that will actually accelerate the, the independence movement here in Alberta. Yeah. And, and, and that's something that uh, I've never really uh, like, I know there's this like segment of the independence movement, a small one who advocate for Alberta joining America. And I just don't think that's a good, like we, we wouldn't be any better off. I mean, we're already beholden to Ottawa. Why would we want to be beholden to New York and Washington? Yeah. Doesn't well, make we're, any we're, sense. we're a little fish in a big pond and what we'd be there is almost a little fish uh, out of the water and, and uh, flopping around that, no, why, why I, I don't see any benefit in that. And the other interesting thing too, though, is Alberta, is that we actually can and will negotiate free trade with countries that, that you know, have our values and, and you know, our um, regulations and whatnot, because we don't need to protect the auto industry. We don't need to protect the dairy industry. All of these things that causes us rift with America are not problems here in Alberta. And so we can actually sit down there, open up the border and actually create free trade with them and, and many other countries around the world. Yeah, that's, that's actually a really good point. Hey, Paul, uh, last question. We're at the, we're coming to the end of 2020. 
if you can look into your crystal ball, what, when do you think this is going to happen? Because personally, it, you know, when I look at the grand scope of history, I truly do believe that Alberta will probably separate from Canada to, at some point. And I mean, you can look at a map of Canada throughout the ages and the map is always changing. Borders are always changing. There's different provinces, territories being added and renamed and conglomerated. So th- there's no question that the map of Canada, you know, in 20, 50 years, 100 years is going to look different than it does today. But when, when do you think Alberta is going to actually be on its own as, as a as a free country? Well, I, I would at this point in the way things have accelerated, I would say if we don't form government in 2023, um, it, it'll be another 50 or 80 years again that we'll become a have not province and won't be in a position to become independent. Um, and so for me, 2023 is critical. And then we, we will have a vote uh, within the next two years of forming government. So 2025, um, I, I think that Alberta can be free. And I think by 2030, it will be the, the freest, most prosperous nation in the world. Uh, but again, I, I don't dispute for a minute that as we go to be independent, we may have a few tough years. I, I don't necessarily see that, but, but you still have to prepare for that. And that's what kind of scares Albertans. And that's why I talk about putting our house in order. Well, Paul, uh, Paul, we're, we're going to have really tough years if we don't do anything. Oh, absolutely. But, but then you become, but, but it's one thing, like right now, we, we still have things going. But again, I, I mean, if a new virus comes out and they shut us down for another six months or another year because a new mutant virus or a new one comes out, we, we, like I say, we could easily be tipping into a have not province. And then Albertans will say, well, we need to stay. But my promise or my, my predictions to Albertans, if we don't get out and they vote next fall about the equalization, Ottawa by then will say, yeah, we're happy to to look at equalization because you guys are so poor and broken. You're not contributing anymore. So we might as well get rid of the equalization. You're right. We don't need it. And so when we're in that broken and dysfunctional state, don't be looking to Ottawa thinking they're going to be sending out money now any more than they did in 1930. They'll be laughing at us and say, it serves you right. And, and you know, they're even saying that about COVID. You know, you've got the premiers and other uh, political leaders saying that we don't deserve any extra help during this COVID dilemma. Yeah. One, one thing that uh, we do on this podcast is uh, one of the themes, I guess you could say, is how uh, you know, me and my guests, we often look at how history moves really, really slowly, 99% of the time. And then for that yeah, brief then- moment of time, it goes very quickly. So, you know, I, I think if people are listening to this uh, and, and sort of laughing about the idea of Alberta independence, it, I don't think you should be laughing. I think it's definitely a, a possibility. Who knows? Maybe, maybe it's something that will happen in the next five years. My prediction, uh, if it means anything, is I, I think that you guys, I think, Paul, you guys are going to win seats. I, I, especially like in rural Alberta, uh, you're, you're going to get on the, you're going to get on the board. And I think that's just a matter of time. And, and, and I'm going to wish you luck with that. Yeah. Well, mi- minimum, what we want to do is to be on the playing field with a minority government where we're holding the balance of power and we can stop this craziness. Paul, I'm going to leave it at that. It's been really nice talking to you and really nice seeing you again. And you Russ, you take care. And that concludes my conversation with Paul Himman former MLA and leader of the Wild Rose Independence Party in Alberta. 
on this podcast, I've always gone out of my way to avoid talking to politicians because we all know that they speak in sound bites, couch their words, and never really tell you what they truly believe. But I made an exception for Paul Heyman. He's a guy who never shies away from open and honest conversation. And I hope you liked it. At the beginning of this episode, I also asked you to think about what the map of Canada might look like in the future. Will Alberta be a part of it? Will BC? Saskatchewan? Once those dominoes start falling, will there even be a Canada? If you like today's episode, do me a favor and subscribe to the podcast and the YouTube channel. Share it with your friends and family too. Leave a review. At this moment, I'm going to give a big thanks to some of the new subscribers to the show. And I'm talking to you, Timo, Lil Boy, Sarge0351, Thermopylae2007, to name just a few. Gentlemen, thank you for your support. And finally, I'm going to dedicate this episode to everyone out there fighting the good fight on lockdowns and mass mandates. Big actions and small. Don't give up. That's it, that's all. Out.